When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Very difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here again with... Scott Tobias. And Keith Thipps. Our absent co-host Genevieve is out sick. She is definitely not in a remote villa living with a vampire. Last week, we talked about No, the complicated 2012 dark comedy of sorts in which Spencer and Jackie director Pablo Lorraine looks back on his native country of Chile and the 1988 countrywide plebiscite that was used to push murderous dictator Augusto Pinochet out of power. While it's a heavily fictionalized story, Lorraine is drawing significantly on the truth, including using the real ad campaign aired by the anti-Pinochet camp ahead of the vote, and real historical footage from Chilean protests and arrests of the time. That's a technique we don't see in the far more stylized and stylish movie El Conde, a black-and-white horror fantasy that imagines Pinochet as a 250-year-old vampire in retirement in a distant villa, where he lives with one faithful servant. After faking his own death in his home country, Pinochet apparently retired to brood and contemplate his own death, which proves harder to come by than he expected, even once he stops drinking blood and starts to age precipitously. Worried that he might take his secrets with him to the grave, his wife and his five late middle-aged children crowd around him, scratching for the inheritance they think they're owed, or the power that he still might be able to grant, especially by biting them and granting him his immortality. As a complication, a young nun tasked with exercising Pinochet arrives in the guise of a helpful accountant and rapidly proves to have her own dark agenda. There's so much going on in Il Conde, meaning the Count, that at times it's hard to track. Not in terms of the narrative, which is often slow and methodical, but in terms of the symbolism of this arch and at times very mysterious movie, where people often seem to be saying the opposite of what they mean, and at other times are so surprisingly frank and straightforward that it's hard to credit that they understand what they're saying. The metaphor of Pinochet as a literal bloodsucker is impossible to miss. But what to make of the rest of this strange, messy, darkly comic movie? We'll discuss it after this break. Yo no quiero vivir 250 años más. ¿Por qué no? Porque me trataron de ladrón. A un soldado se le puede decir que es un asesino, pero no que es un ladrón. Pero robaste, ¿o no? Yo vine para acá porque dijeron que iban a repartir plata. Eso te lo dije yo para convencerte, imbécil. ¿Y entonces no van a repartir nada? Buenas tardes. Buenas tardes, señor. También es verdad que yo cometí errores. I know uh, a little about what Scott thinks of this movie because I read his review on, uh, where was it? Where was that review, Scott? The reveal, the reveal.substack.com. <laughs> so I have a little of an idea of uh, what you think of it. So let's let's start with Keith. How did you take this movie, Keith? So I like this movie. I, I thought, it, you know, it's, it's gorgeous looking. It's, uh, you know, funny, uh, uh, frequently funny. I just kind of found myself struggling and perhaps knowing more specifically more specifics of of, of chilean politics would have helped this but with this but like i kind of trying to figure out where the second idea was you know it's like this is it's a really brilliant metaphor to have pinochet as a deathless vampire like when i, I chuckled when i heard of the premise of this and then you see it and then the movie just keeps going and you know i i was never at any point was disliking the film but i i and certainly it gets a kind of a a shot in the arm in the final sequence which probably we shouldn't spoil or should or should announce we're gonna we're gonna talk about before before we spoil it but in terms of it being you know at the level of other lorraine films i've enjoyed I found it a, a, a little limited, frankly. I, although, man, that at, at Lockman cinematography, that I could just the look of this film is is Unreal. really incredible. Oh yeah. yeah. 
Tasha, well, I, I'm curious about you. I, I'm having somewhat mixed feelings about it. At the time watching it, I found it a little opaque in some ways. And I feel like it wasn't really until maybe three fourths of the way through the movie that I started to kind of relax into its rhythms. I was much too concerned at the beginning about whether there was symbolism that I was missing, like, like fairly specific symbolism that maybe somebody who grew up in, in Pinochet's uh, Chile would, would get. I kept thinking like, what, what does this mean? What does that mean? Which is much like the way that I, uh, I watched a no, perhaps not the best way to watch a movie. And somewhere about, about three quarters of the way through, I started thinking, well, okay, this isn't necessarily about him and about his rule. It's about power and the cloud of people that it attracts and, and the people around him. And I started maybe focusing less on what everybody, there, there's just, there's so much People do things that contradict things that they're saying and, uh, you know, people show that they're very two-faced. People enter the movie with like fairly unclear uh, motives and then lie to each other a lot. And trying to sort through all of it and find the truth in it had me very distracted. I think I would like this movie a lot better the second time through just kind of relaxing into it and looking at it as kind of a satire about the people who are drawn to like illegitimate and dictatorial power, not all of them are literal vampires. Some of them are, but they're kind of all leeches. And it kind of feels like that's the second idea you're looking for, Keith. Mm, like, yeah. like uh, that's the real joke. No, it's like succession. <laughs> it's part of it too. <laughs> of these, of these like five uh, adult failed children who have come to kind of, you know, take what's theirs because they have no real ability to do anything on their own. I mean, I guess it's just an element of the movie. But my general feeling about the movie, which I did like overall, is that it it is extraordinarily strong conceptually and visually, but it's a little bit rudderless. You know, particularly in this in the middle part of it, I, I think you really. I kind of wish that there was a, a kind of a certain amount of urgency. An investment in in the story and in the characters that was going to kind of propel this film forward, because I feel like just I feel like the like it really leads leans so much on the conceit, which is indeed clever and evocative and suggestive and all, all these ways that you want it to be. But all of that said, it is a pretty valuable lesson in terms of the one big thought I came away with watching this movie was just about legacy and about how you can dispel a dictator you could dispel fascism uh, but that doesn't mean it's going to go away it can kick him out of power but it doesn't mean that the roots are not still present you know and and that or that this is or, or that this hasn't in, indeed been an ancient evil that has been around for 250 years in this case you know, I mean, and I think that's kind of, I mean, that's something I, I, I tend to think about all the time about different countries, about, about the, 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 how the forces of darkness can be, are always present. You know, it's just about summoning those forces, you know, as opposed to su suppressing them. So, so, and again, another, th another thing that I think about with our own country, right? About just like, okay, you've tapped in, you know, somebody like Donald Trump has tapped into, something extraordinarily dark that has always been present in, in America, but no one's, no one's done that. No, no one has had the, 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 uh, um, quite the nerve to bring it out. Now that it's out, it's something dangerous because it becomes this thing of, of, of people who are willing to go to places that, that they would be shunned for even thinking about before the impossible, the horrifying becomes mainstream thought. And I, it was just, it was just kind of a, kind of what I was thinking, watching Pinochet in this movie of just like, this is somebody who you thought was dead, <laughs> you know, who you thought is, was gone. It was not a part of Chile anymore, but in fact is someone who exists, who has ancestors, who is, you know, unkillable, you know, and, and is a presence you're going to have to deal with forever. Unless you stab him in the heart. <laughs> <stick>. <laughs>
Well, there, I mean, there is certainly a degree to which, like, we do see what it takes to get rid of a vampire in this movie. And it's, like, direct unflinching action. And a lot of the methods that do not involve direct unflinching action uh, do not only do not work, but are very dangerous for the person taking a hesitant or mollifying action. So, I mean, I do think that there's a lot of like metaphorical resonance going on here, but I agree with you that I do wish it had had maybe a little more propulsiveness to it, Mm -hmm. like a little more intention uh, in terms of moving forward. I, I think it's pretty slow in the middle and there is a turning point that really made the movie for me that I don't think we need to give away in in vast detail, but I think we can get to as we kind of move into slightly more spoilerific uh, territory. Before we do that, I want to just kind of like the big thing that we're not going to get to in much in connections is Pinochet himself, given how how little no treats with him directly and head on and how much this movie does. I'm curious what you make of this film's visualization of him leaving aside the very obvious uh, vampire metaphor. He's also like an old, tired, cranky man Mm -hmm. who has just very specific relationships with all of the people around him that are kind of based in layers of of deceit and need. He's it's not a flattering portrayal of him at all, but it's also not one that's like respectful of his power or, you know, engaging with his legacy, like past the most obvious, here's the history that we know. What did you think of how this movie portrays him? I think it's really smart about making him look ridiculous. Like there, there he is dressed up in his fancy uniform. There's a lot of that too, but also there he is consuming human hearts. You know, this is, this is not, I don't think it really kind of minimizes the threat of this character while still also sending him up uh, pretty mercilessly. Yeah. I mean, he, he is kind of a fool and he's, he's vain too. I think there's a sense of, uh, you know, I mean, I, I think what his, his, him wanting to, die basically is is uh seems to be a reflection of you know of a kind of a petty disappointment over over how things have shaken out in chile uh, in terms of his own reputation you know it just didn't quite go the way he'd uh he'd hoped and i mean this is somebody this is a vampire that had uh really worked very hard and very long to get his moment in in power right i mean he was he's uh he was around when uh during the french revolution and uh he was on the wrong side of various revolutions around the world before finding his place in chile and where did it ultimately leave him uh you know disappointed and desiccated and and uh you know with with in i don't know misunderstood <laughs> Maybe not misunderstood. In, in his in his is his mind misunderstood, yes. Right. Yeah, is there is there anybody in this movie that you see as a, a sympathetic figure or a focus of maybe audience even empathy, like engagement? Is there anybody in this movie that you're not ultimately meant to either laugh at or be horrified by or both? Uh, I mean, the trickiest character is is Carmen, the the nun. Who I mean, I was a little, I found it a little bit murky. Um, you know, she's sent to exercise Pinochet and interrogate the family, and ends up being drawn in and corrupted by it. But even going into that, she seemed to believe she was already damned. I I, I was I was a little confused as to how, what the actual uh, progression was there. So I will say that the way I took it by the end, I can I can get to this part at least without spoilers, is if you track her actual actions, I think with this entire film, there's a lot of listen to what people say, because it's funny when you see what they actually do. Uh, there is a lot of contradiction between, for instance, things that the narrator tells us are true and things that the characters say are true. And I am very much inclined to believe the narrator, especially given how all that works out. As far as Carmen's character goes, she's very deliberately presented with a murky agenda. And then she comes in under a series of falsehoods and she takes a series of actions what I have a hard time tracking is the relationship between her actions and her emotions. We see her like break down in tears multiple times. And I'm not always sure what 
exactly she's responding to, like what the internal movement is, like what she's thinking. I think what she ends up doing is very telling. And there's a late film reveal of something that she was instructed to do that was not part of the initial briefing that I think makes this movie seem a lot more cynical, particularly about the relationship between the church and Pinochet and maybe the relationship between the Catholic Church and, you know, tyrants and dictators in general. Yeah, I, I, I was pretty thoroughly flummoxed by the Carmen character though not unintrigued. There's something so striking about that actress. And I did find myself kind of inching forward in my seat during her scenes, trying to kind of figure out what her agenda was. But I don't know if I ever really succeeded terribly much in solving it. I mean, that's the kind of thing that that just, it, it almost feels like it's a rewrite away. Like he's just got so much, there's just so much about this film that is that is dead on from a conceit conceptual point of view like the look of the film the the music the you know the, the concept of of pinochet as a 20 250 year old vampire who licked the guillotine of marie antoinette at one point i mean all that stuff is really good and some of the characters you know the, the idea of of these uh, children who are coming to get to find the money that is theirs that is hidden in hidden in various secret accounts all that you know all that stuff is really fascinating and conceptually it's just it's just vague in the execution and i think that i think i think carmen is kind of like a poster girl of that flaw i guess in the film that that you just you just wish the film had the clarity and snap on a on a plotting and characterization front that the film like no did I certainly wish it was more like No in that I think that No managed to convey a great deal of information in some pretty efficient ways, in ways that didn't feel like a a big pile of exposition, whereas this film withholds a lot of information that you need for a lot of its runtime. But I'll tell you what maybe helped me uh, put things into perspective. One, One thing, honestly, which I've kind of discussed with both of you a little behind the scenes, is that a lot of the the way Carmen is shot reminded me of Carl Dreyer's Passion of Joan of Arc. You know, the way she's shot with the, the short clipped hair and the long naked neck and how she's constantly sort of like rolling her eyes up to heaven. There's just a, a degree to which I, I feel like she's presented as someone within kind of the transports of religious ecstasy or sometimes sexual ecstasy. And the movie absolutely smudges the line between them. And I think that made her character both more complex and more interesting to me. But the film that this movie reminded me of more than anything was The Death of Stalin. I, oh, I just right. I yeah. feel like I feel like it's kind of fundamentally a comedy about the whole at the center of these people's universe and the degree to which they all like revolve around this terrifying figure that is now become like weakened and incompetent or at least they believe he has and they're all just like elbowing each other aside to see who's going to profit as he starts his decline and the direction that the movie goes in is a very different direction than uh, than death of stalin but it just it kind of seemed to while being a very different movie particularly in its tone and rhythms uh it kind of seemed to be coming conceptually from some of the same places to me. I mean, that's kind of what it's missing, though, is like it, it was death, you, you kind of miss Iannucci's writing or Jesse Armstrong's writing, if you want to get to the succession part piece of this. Like, you kind of miss, like, it's just not really Lorraine's specialty, it doesn't seem to kind of, like, give you this scene-by-scene, scene, line-by-line kind of, like, snappiness that's in place in the in 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 these other satires it's not really where he kind of is coming from i mean this is this could be alconi is could rightly be called a black comedy you know or even a satire but it's not uh, i I don't think that's necessarily lorraine's strength you know as a director is to you know to give you a, a lot of comedy i think he's he's really a, a strong political thinker he's very good at at uh, conceptualizing his movies and there's so much about this film that's just exceptional that's extraordinary on that front you know i mean the i mean the lockman cinematography i just i can't get over how beautiful this film is to look yeah. at it and it's it's like criminal almost that it's going to be you know pretty much straight to, to netflix because i just i think if the film would look so so amazing 
projected and and uh you know i think i think lockman given his rep should have you know every opportunity to get <laughs> oscar nominations or anything for this work because i think it's i think even by his very high standards this is this is uh, this is a very very good work it's interesting too because i felt like and well spencer and jackie are both they both very much use the language of horror films i think they're kind of work better as horror films than this it necessarily was it wasn't necessarily mm. the intent of el conde but but um it's interesting it's, it's funny to me that that the closest somebody's made to something that can be classified as a horror film is less you know is less skilled in using the language of horror uh than than films that that are not in that genre well, that's, I think that's because horror tends to be something that we experience from the perspective of the victims, which is kind of what Jackie and Spencer and Diane or whatever mm-hmm. are, Diana are in those movies of just like they're, they're being, you know, uh, crushed uh, by uh, public events and being public figures and having to deal with these, uh, these, these kind of rituals and these roles that they that they've been then that have been foisted upon them you know making a film that is that is if not, it's it's certainly not as strongly in pinochet's perspective as you know as jackie and spencer are to the leads in those but but he's you know pinochet is the, the monster you know you don't and it doesn't uh for some reason it doesn't really play as as horror especially since you know this is such a He's in such an existential state in this, right? I mean, he's not really, you know. Uh, I mean, he, he has these sort of this, this, these sort of desultory meals of blended hearts or something. But, but in terms of uh, stalking and killing and be, being a monster, he's just kind of too bummed out to do anything like that. <laughs> I do yeah, like I that guess... about it a lot. It's just how like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's, his very existence is so reduced to being disappointed with life itself or un, you know unlife or whatever mm-hmm. yeah i guess from that as far as that idea of horror being from the victim's standpoint goes i'm not sure that there are any victims in this movie and i i do think that that's kind of a, a point of the narrative is that all of his true victims are elsewhere mm. um <laughs> the vast majority of them likely dead he's he's kind of escaped you know this is the freddy is like lurked off back into the dream dimension and nobody can reach him there but he's not happy and he's just kind of sulking surrounded by inept uh, fail followers so yeah i i definitely don't think that it is really aiming at horror much despite the trappings of vampirism and and blood and people being hunted down and the the gore in the movie uh which in some cases is quite prominent it just isn't really speaking the language of horror. It, it also, it isn't speaking the intensity of horror. You know, there, there's no point where you're on the edge of your seat worrying about what's going to happen to somebody. I guess I said there's no victims in the movie and, and there are victims, but we don't know their names. We don't spend any time with them. They're, they're nameless corpses. So uh, all of this is is mostly just to say, while this movie has images perhaps out of a horror film, I don't think that it's like playing in that ballpark at all. I agree. What do you make of the, the butler, the Nazi S butler who had, like ran a concentration camp was responsible for uh, a whole lot of atrocities that are named. And then we spend time with him as both a fanatical uh, devoted follower of Pinochet and as somebody who's actively betraying him. Like I, I want to say that that's just sort of another satirical aspect of how nobody in power like this does truly have loyal followers. They're all in it for their own agendas, but he's just such a strange character who more than anybody else in the movie, I think to me feels maybe inconsistent from scene to scene. How did you take him? I was. I assumed he was based on an actual historical figure, uh, like one of Pinochet's henchmen or whatever. But apparently not. Uh, I was. You know. I think you're right. I think it is. It seems to me a, a fairly inconsistent character. I don't know. I mean, I think. I mean, this is a a sycophant, a true believer, right? I mean, like the the, the Stephen Miller uh, too. Yeah, <laughs> to, I mean, uh, I, I do like. Pinochet's I do like, like Tasha's reading of it, but yes. Yeah, I mean, I, just, I, I do like the, uh, I, I like this character. I l- freaking love the performance too. Alfredo Castro is somebody who, uh, who uh, is a regular, I guess, in in uh, Lorraine's Chilean films, anyway. And uh, 
you know, that's a character that really kind of oozes menace in a way that Pinochet in his state doesn't does not. I mean, there's something kind of a little bit, a little bit. You know, if there is anything approaching horror in the movie, it kind of all emanates from this character who's uh, who really does seem alive with you know a certain sinister menace. Given just how much is going on in this movie in terms of the, again layers uh, and a lot of characters and kind of a lot of sort of uh, tonal and conceptual shifts and things being revealed. What stands out for you about this movie? Like, what what's going to stick with you like three or six months from now? I think we're all going to be remembering no pretty fondly. Mm-hmm. What do you think you're going to take away from El Conde? I mean, two things for me. The look of the film is definitely, and, and the sound of it. I mean, I think that carries over from from Jackie and from Spencer as well. Of just the because those have that those scores to them and, and a certain stylization um, that's consistent too. I mean, just like the Im- images of of uh, Pinochet, you know, in his little cape, kind of floating <laughs> through uh, uh, the the countryside. It just is, is is so gorgeous. And then and then again, this idea of of the nature of fascism and and what the legacy of it is and 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 how it you know how it kind of transmorphs or not even transmorphs but like but has a continuity from one place to another through through the ages how it never goes away how it's eternal in the way that uh, Pinochet is in this movie I think that's a pretty resonant theme uh that that hit, hit me pretty hard uh, uh watching this movie yeah I think that's that's probably especially I wrestled with like some of the the actual parts of the film I think that's the central metaphor is pretty strong and pretty timeless unfortunately Hmm. and i think that plays out very well and and i mean it it does look incredible i can't dwell enough on that and like you brought up the flying scenes those are all really remarkably well done too and i'm you know i'm not quite sure how uh, how that was those effects were accomplished but they're they're quite impressive and uh oh I, i will say my favorite shot of the film Though is Pinochet going back to the presidential palace and you know lamenting that there's no bust of himself and kind of standing in between the two <laughs> uh, the two busts perfectly still. I mean that that made me laugh. That's pretty good. Yeah. That's a great shot. Yeah, with the narrator complaining that uh, history can be very petty, as if the reason that he doesn't have a bust in the presidential palace is uh, you know just a, a quirk of bureaucracy and paperwork as opposed to all of the actual reasons. But yeah, him standing yeah. in for his own bust is a a mordantly hilarious moment that just like hits i think comedy notes may be stronger than just about anything else in the film we haven't talked about the identity of the narrator and we've kind of agreed that that's a place that we don't want to go since uh, we we don't know that we have anything deeply insightful to say about it but it is i think a memorable reveal when it happens that's going to stick with me but ultimately, there's a scene towards the towards the third act of the film of flying that is probably the most beautiful thing I've seen in film this year. Uh, mm. It's it's if we if we do any kind of a best scenes of the year list, that one's going to be at the top for me. It's again almost kind of a, a moment of uh, like religious ecstasy uh, or just experiential ex- ecstasy it reminded me of Terrence Malick of all things it's so beautifully shot it did leave me with questions of how exactly it was managed but I just all all conscious thought about this movie fell away for a little while as I was watching like what that character was experiencing in that moment and it's it kind of drops away. Like again, all of those layers uh, that, that make a Lorraine film just kind of fall off into the simplicity of somebody learning something new and experiencing pleasure. I, I just, I love that sequence. Cinema baby. That's, that's kind of why, that's kind of why I give That's kind of why I ultimately gave a positive review to the film is just like, it's, you know, I mean, I could complain all I want about uh, the uh, plotting and characterization, but, you know movies are movies and like this is a this is a damn movie it looks it just it gets you on that kind of primal level sometimes just how how striking it is well we're about to pair up this damn movie with another damn movie and uh see if they're both a cinema a a movie that we perhaps gave a stronger positive review to but these movies both do have a lot to say to each other we'll be back with connections after this break 
years later, the vampire Pinoche resurfaced, fighting against the revolutions in Haiti, Russia, and Algeria. But he tired of being a simple soldier and resolved to become a commander. And for this, he chose a country without a king, an insignificant corner of South America. In 1935, he reappeared under his definitive name in this land of fatherless peasants, Chile. His aim was clear, to be a king. But his plan would be imperfect without a woman at his side. For this, he chose a woman even more perverse and unscrupulous than him, Lucia Hiriart. Years later, now a general, in 1973, he staged a coup d'etat, bombing the government house, to oust the socialist president, Salvador Allende. Although he often looked like a pimp in the hide of a banana republic mafioso, the truth is that this little general successfully rescued Chile from a Bolshevik infestation. In private, he demanded to be called Count. Now it's time for Connections, when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, Maybe starting with the way they're both reflecting on Pinochet's role, one towards the very end of it and one afterwards. But I think both of these movies are inherently just kind of looking at not just the impact that he had on the country, but the damage that he left behind on, on people's psyches. I think the way he lured in terrible people who managed to find ways to justify themselves doing terrible things, or in some cases didn't think that they were doing anything wrong at all. That sequence that I keep coming back to that is, for me, one of the most memorable things about No, where the government flack is talking about how they're going to pull the wool over the people's eyes, feels to me very much of a piece with El Conde and its little cloud of hungry, leechy followers trying to figure out how they're going to profit off of Pinochet and his death. So, I mean, both of these movies are kind of about the shift in power and kind of about Pinochet the man and how, for all the control he exerted over the country, for all the damage he dealt, for all the people he murdered, he's still kind of a a vapid void, you know, a, a, a face and a force but in the end, just kind of, you know, evanescent. So I, what, do you, what do you think about how these two movies reflect on Pinochet and his uh, dictatorship? Well, I mean, I would say in both films, he's invisible. Uh, you know, even though he's present to us in El, El Conde, it is, he, he, you know, he is, I don't think, present to any, anyone else. I mean, he's, he's uh, uh, you know, other than, other than the ho- horrible people in his, in his sphere, it's about being present while being invisible. You know, I mean, he, he's, uh, he has control over the yes campaign. He's kind of putting them in a box in the way that they, you know, that they have to conduct themselves the way that, that the way he wants to be seen. And that's, that of course is an obsession that he has in El Conde as well. Like how does the country see me? What is, uh, you know, am I exalted, you know? And, um, you know, so, so there's a, there, you know, his, you know, there's sort of an invisible narcissism that, that kind of carries, uh, over from one, one, one movie to another an invisible control. Like he's not present in the lives of, uh, you know, in on screen in a way, or at least in the, in the lives of uh, his, his people. But he is of course, you know, very much still there. Yeah, I, I I don't know. I I don't truly really how see how he's invisible in in El Conde though, which seems very much about like almost literally digging up the corpse of this you know now <laughs> widely hated figure and 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 for for the purpose of humiliation. I don't I don't mean that in a way that in any I don't want to stress in any way that I disapprove of that. I just think it's just what's that's kind of what's going on there and throwing in the rest of his family while you're at it. Yeah, I mean I guess there's just something about about him being present when he isn't. You know, and you know, and I know that he's quite literally a vampire in El Conde, and, and it appears to us in some kind of form. But it is, it, but a lot of his obsession is about how his legacy has shaped the country, what his presence is like, and we, we, you know, it is still there, even in his absence, when there's no bust of him there, it's still that, that still 
he's still present in his, in his way. And, and, you know, and of course, El Conde, the whole concept of it is, is about him continuing to exist and having always existed, you know, what, what, you know, whether he was, you know, technically, you know, alive or not, you know, so, so in that, and that's, I think that they kind of come together and of course, no, he's not there, but he's there and is, is kind of calling the shots, even though we never really see him. I feel like maybe one of the big contrasts between these movies is that No is so expressly about kind of the the moment of his downfall, the what led up to it and uh, like what forces managed it, but ultimately the change in the country that pushed him out. Whereas El Conde, and now I am going to get into spoiler territory, so if you're going to watch this film, you should not listen to the next thing that I say. I, it's kind of how Pinochet got his groove back, you know, by by the end, he's kind of thrust aside all of these leeches and, and followers and hangers on and people who have betrayed him and kind of returned to form, found a new lease on life and is going forward to do terrible things. And I certainly want to see that as a metaphor for uh, like the cyclic power of history and the way these kinds of dictators just keep rising and falling, rising and falling, rising and falling, and how there's always another one in the wings. I don't necessarily see it as a reflection on Pinochet and, and the idea that like he might someday return so much as it just seems like there's always another strong man looking for an angle in exactly the same way, there's always a bunch of hangers on, like standing in his shadow, you know, clinging remora like to his stomach, like waiting for little bits of food to fall. <laughs> I like it. I think both El Conde and No depict uh, Pinochet's followers as pathetic in, in different ways. Uh, I think in some ways, uh, you know, in, in No, there there there's sort of a complacency. There's sort of a, a self serving, you know, for a position of power. And I think El Conde kind of strips all that down. It it's it's a matter of it's almost corpse like in a sense. Of like these are the last few people trying to pick over what's left of the corruption and abuse of Pinochet. As with much of the film, I think it's kind of uh, like presenting this this caricature and holding it up for mockery and then making it grotesque. Whereas, you know, I think no kind of benefits. It's a nice contrast because you could see where all that began. You can see all this in action. You can see how it kind of worked and how people were kind of, uh, uh, you know, what it was like to be a leech when the, the body was still full of blood, I guess, is a way to put it. I like that. <laughs> I like, you turned yeah. into a hype man, Scott. Oh, yeah. yeah that's a leech from the body go, full girl. of blood. Yeah, I mean, it kind of leads into, the lechery part of it kind of leads into another, the sort of money factor that's at play in, in, in both of these movies too, the, the business side of things, um, you know, uh, because you have in El Conde, you have, uh, Pinochet's children, you know, scrambling to figure out where their money is, where, where the, all of this, the money that wasn't seized that, that, that they, that was able to be tucked away and hidden accounts. Like how, how do you, you know, what, what kind of treasure hunt do you need to go on in order to find that location and take that, take that that money that is that, that that's kind of this you know again kind of succession like it's a it's not even succession in the sense they're not even claiming power they just want to take their chunk of their inheritance and and, and and no it's a little bit different i mean you do have uh professionals uh paid professionals who are managing these campaigns uh, uh two guys from the same agency uh, uh spearheading each each side and really kind of seeing, really kind of seeing things from that perspective which is so unusual and and uh you know given how the other people involved in these campaigns are so ideologically engaged they're engaged in kind of understanding politics as as marketing as a product as as something that that is a widget uh, uh you know uh, like like soda or uh, or uh, uh microwaves and uh and uh it's interesting the way money figures into uh this environment in which you know there's all these more bigger more tyrannical things going on scott i've i've been tracking throughout uh both halves of this pairing just like how often you talk about the fail sons and fail daughters 
going for their money, you know, their their due, what they their what inheritance. They yes. Yeah, that's just it. I, I think it's important to note throughout all of this that like they have they have no right to that money. I mean, it's ill gotten in the first place. It's all embezzled from the country, stolen from the country, illegitimately hidden uh, in various places around the world. But on top of that, they're trying to inherit before their father's dead because they they just they have no respect for him. You know, they're his his time is over. His ability to uh, help them with his power seems to be over. And they've just moved directly to like, how can we again, uh, we're, we're looking for the blood within this corpse. And I just I see so much parallel between that and the the group of people plotting how to take how to keep democracy out of the hands of of people in their country by promising them wealth that they'll never have you know by hanging this invisible promise over them and and playing on their greed the degree to which people are willing to accept atrocity if they might profit from it is i think a really strong idea in both of these movies and one that lorraine looks on with just like unquestionable like asperity and contempt while also just acknowledging that it's kind of the way a lot of people work yeah yeah i mean i'm okay right i mean there's like a there's a bit in uh no kind of early on where 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 they sort of quiz uh this woman who who they discern correctly would be a yes vote and she's kind of just kind of talks about how she's okay you know how the situation is okay for her and her kids and it's not really you know and that's kind of the the angle at which she's going to look at everything and not really the other stuff doesn't necessarily matter like it like all that is you know, if you're doing okay, then then uh, it doesn't necessarily matter as much how how anybody else is doing. Or how the country's faring? I mean, the, the tyranny seems abs- uh, the, the the effects seem abstract. Somehow. It's almost like in the era of no, there's this very broad circle that benefits from corruption and abuse and the authoritarianism in general. And by El Conde, uh, it, it's gone to a very very tight circle and uh, leaving out all but his immediate uh those immediate uh, immediately around him though as it ends perhaps there's a possibility that, that that circle can always widen again yeah i think that not only is it has it become a smaller circle by the time of Conde, it's also more concentrated you know everybody in know that's on the make and looking to profit from keeping him in power is maybe trying to profit on a smaller scale rather than absconding with millions and millions of dollars in stolen gold and real estate. So there's just sort of a sense of like, it's a tontine as more and more people fall away. The few that remain have a chance to have, have much greater profits. But I, I feel a little bad, I think, about that interview scene in No, because I feel like that woman is kind of being held up by the progressives interviewing her as kind of a figure of like that they have despairing contempt for Mm. like these, these are the lumpen mankind that we have to deal with and somehow find a way to reach, you know, she's just sort of held up as nobody says, look at this idiot. What are we supposed to do with it? But that's just what the scene feels like a bit to me. Like she's kind of being trotted out as a display And the fact that, you know, she's certainly lived through dangerous, tumultuous times where even if she herself uh, was not in danger of death or starvation, which she very well might have been, given what her concerns are, she certainly saw people around her dealing with these things and kind of going to a place of... Well, he's brought stability, and in that stability, my family is doing okay, does kind of make sense to me as an argument. Like, it certainly makes sense in terms of why the the progressive parties in no realize that they need to be selling hope rather than selling people like her on, no, the things you have are actually bad, though, and you should feel bad about them. Yeah. It just it feels insightful in a way, but it also feels very derogatory. I think towards her and and her beliefs, which yeah, you can't, well, you can't. Yes, but I mean, I think you can't say the approach ends up being you can't say reject what's happening now 
and embrace an uncertain future. <laughs> it's got to be That's like, fair. it's got to be like, let's just at least kind of give you this idea, this propagandized, I, you know, and, uh, idea of a ha- happy future. We'll, we'll fill in that blank later on and then that's that that's the promise because you know you know i you know i didn't feel it. you think the film's treatment or you think the character's treatment of that character was uh kind of condescending i thought that the film's treatment of the character mm. was kind of condescending it's kind of realistic to me though it, it, it did really kind of seem it's, a kitchen, it's like said. a kitchen table perspective on politics which that's so important of just like people really do so frequently think about how their own set of circumstances first their own family uh you know and i think that she's in a position of of feeling like the status quo is acceptable because of you know where she's at in her life where her family's at in their lives to gamble on something else to to accept change when change is still going to be kind of a question mark that's a hard thing to that's a hard sell it's also like unfair because everyone knows the best way to get the, the the pulse of a country is to wander into a diner in the middle of nowhere <laughs> See, and just start too. talking to people. That's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Where's the yeah? You got they. Where do they? Why why weren't they in a diner somewhere in the middle of Pennsylvania? <laughs> Sitting down over hamburgers, <laughs> inevitably hamburgers. Yeah, I, I. As much as we're mocking that idea, though, I just I feel like there are other ways that the story could have gotten at that perspective by maybe interrogating more than one person as opposed to specifically trotting out Renee's nanny in just in a, a way that to me just sort of smacked of, let me show you what the problem is. You, uh, domestic, come here. <laughs> you, expose your Expose your rubishness for us all. <laughs> and then without dismissing her, just kind of talking about, okay, so this is the problem that we're facing. So she's just sort of standing there awkwardly after having been summoned over. Like all, all of that that framing for the insight was what struck me as condescending. The insight was very important, you know, understanding yeah, it is, it's such an important, it's so important though. It's such like a, it's such a crucial wake up call when you're talk when you're having to talk to, you know, politically engaged people, ideologues, you know, uh, uh, about how to win an election because it's like, because they, they're, you know, they're so engaged and they're so, frightened of you know horrified by what pinochet has done and and this the, the stakes are so high for them but it's like he gets to say look at this this is this is actually who we need to convince <laughs> you know and the way you're doing it isn't actually going to work that's not the way this is gonna that's not the way we're going to sell it and i think it's it's an important scene but i i take your point in terms of it being a little bit reductive i suppose of this particular character there's an absence of, sh- of subtlety there Yes. Yeah, for sure. Fair. And and no is a subtler movie than that in most uh I think of its drives, which is maybe why it stands out. Yeah. But what that what that whole idea speaks to, I think, and this is true of both of these films, is that these these are both kind of stories about manipulation. In no, it's just a very open on the table. The other side is manipulating everybody in this way. We need to manipulate people in this other way. Let's talk a bunch about like what our manipulations are going to be and how we make them work. In El Conde, there's a lot of manipulation of people through deceit, basically. Uh, Carmen in particular enters the scene under a false name and uh, a false story and then just kind of interrogates everybody from under the protection of that false story. She asks them very direct questions about their criminality and their their compliance with the regime, their their tyranny, the crimes that they've committed, and they answer somewhere between obliviously and proudly. She manipulates them more than anybody else. She goes on to manipulate their father, but their father is also kind of manipulating them with his his absence and his choices. I'm not convinced that he's as uh, foggy and senile as he pretends to be, given how much that varies from scene to scene. His servant is manipulating him through deception. His wife is manipulating him. I, there's just, there's a lot, there's a big web of manipulation going on in uh, both of these movies, I think. Did you get the sense that Carmen had some kind of supernatural powers in those scenes to just get people to, to say exactly what their crimes were? Or we are we just supposed to think those characters are that dumb? I think they're absolutely meant to be that dumb. Okay. And I think that she's inviting them 
to talk about things that they've never been able to openly talk about before. And she's presenting herself as both a sympathetic year and an admiring one. Mm-hmm. You know, the the thing that she says to the son that keeps reminding me of Jermaine Clement to the effect of like, you know, I've, I've never... <laughs> I've never seen anybody so incredibly dishonest. And he's like, thank you. <laughs> I I think that they all see her as kind of a fan. And she presents herself as kind of a fan because she knows that by playing on their egos, uh, she can get what she wants. But I think that they just think that they're in safe company and that they're so used to being surrounded by loyalists and and servants, people that they can disregard, that it just doesn't occur to them that she's like trying to pry into their secrets in a bad way, as opposed to trying to figure out how to make them money. In terms of offering any kind of hope, in some ways, El Conde finds a much much weakened and diminished Pinochet, but I think it's a bleaker film than, than No, certainly, which it ends on such a hopeful note. And while in some, you, you can see El Conde is just sort of, as I suggested before, digging up a corpse to make fun of it. I think there's more going on than that, too. In a way, it's it's not as optimistic as it's the, the, the film we've paired it with. Yeah, agreed. Uh, given, given the way El Conde ends... I think it's a much more cynical film and a much more brutal film, uh, I think, about just like the nature of of power and tyranny and deception. I guess my follow up question is, do you see uh, no present as, as, you know, as, as let's just say pragmatic as it is about what it takes to win an election? It does see a way forward out of, of the situation that it's trying to correct, which, of course, you know, the country it was backed up by history. Does El Conde have any sort of hope in terms of, say, let's put a, finally putting a stake in the heart of, of, of the, the problem it's, it's uh, depicting? No. I yeah, mean, I didn't think so. really don't think <laughs> so. But, you know, I, but no is not. No is, I mean, I mean, there's there's a little bit of, there's a kind of a, what's the, what's the opposite of a silver line? A dark cloud. Uh, what's yeah. the opposite of a silver lining? There's a dark cloud. I mean, in terms of uh, what is what Renee has kind of ushered in and, and the kind of, you know, what, what, what sort of world and system, I suppose, is replacing the one that they've dispelled because it, it, it's all, also kind of imperfect. Renee's vision or understanding of the world, if that's if that is what has proven to be persuasive in this moment, it, you know, it is not itself without corruption and without you know, it's 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 not that idealistic in its way. Um, and I think at the end of it, you're beginning. They don't make it work, but you are beginning to see how the opposition is using trying to use those tools for its own ends as well. Yeah, right. Exactly. It's just, yeah, it's sort of changing the dialogue in a way, but not, but the uh, ideological underpinnings of both sides are, are still the same. I think both of these movies arguably end on just a moment of, and then history continued, you mm-hmm. know, a, a moment of this isn't the end. This may be the end of one chapter, but it, it's just going to be the beginning of a new thing. Even if you don't read that shot of Renee and his son as, you know, a, a moment of like despair or realization or disillusion, even if you just read it as uh, it's time to go home and put the kid to bed, there's definitely just sort of a sense of, and then there's always going to be another thing and another thing and another thing. And he's going to, I mean, and Lorraine himself is just going to circle around it too. I mean, he's, this is, he's made four or five films now about or around Pinochet. I mean, the, this is, this is an obsession of his, uh, you know, and again, you know, the, this was uh, this moment that was depicted in No would have happened when he was a, a 12 year old. So he has a very acute sense of what that of what the the legacy is and the way sort of history operates and repeats itself and 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 he does kind of clearly likes likes to kind of circle back to this theme and and, and uh, keep himself and our and his viewers aware of it. I think with that in mind, to kind of close out these uh, connections, we can just we could talk a little bit maybe about how both of these movies, they aren't just about Pinochet and his people. They're about resistance and rebellion. They're about how do you fight back against these things? And what makes El Conde a you know bitter and dark movie for me is the sense that the one person who you truly think has a chance of fighting back ends up compromised, ends up revealing more about themselves than uh, 
than you knew at the beginning and revealing that they have, uh, I think, a much more selfish agenda, uh, a much more, you know, personal and, and pleasure driven and power driven agenda. And I think El Conde really kind of suggests that there is no pure uh, resistance. There is no, you know, force of good out there fighting back. Whereas no presents its resistors as mostly, you know, potentially compromised or questionable in the tools that they're using, but also crafty and intelligent, capable of cooperation with each other, capable of uh, humor and of like finding a message and sticking to it. And most importantly, capable of enacting real and lasting uh, change, which, you know, we know about because of the historical record, maybe more than we know about from the film itself. But, you know, inherently, both of these films are at least kind of questioning, what does it take to strike back at a dictator? Yes. Yeah, maybe so. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess I'm almost thinking, think more about no in that context than I do about El Conde, because so much of so much of El Conde is about you know what what's happening within Pinochet and the that sort of family sphere, and uh, you get a little broader look of things in, in a movie like No. But I mean, the no, it No is at least a belief. I mean, it really it may question Renee and his motivations and and uh, his ideals, but uh, but I think you know it, it it celebrates pretty firmly the people around him and their in their efforts and their and their passion, their political beliefs i think are are pretty unambiguously championed yeah well i mean i think in some ways putting these films side by side is is el conde might be the movie you make uh after you've lost some of the optimism of no because i did really feel you know you lee i at least left no on a high thinking like hey so the good guys won you know for once and i you know, I maybe I laughed more at El Conde, but but the the, the laughs that kind of uh, uh, curdle as as they, as they're exiting the body. Yeah, no, it's, it's the, really was, true. It was no young Frankenstein. It was like a laugh. <laughs> for yeah, it was no young far, Frankenstein. Far, they promised me young Frankenstein with this movie. What, what's a, what's up a with black that? and white? It's a black and white comedy about uh, the undead. Pinochet dead and not loving it. <laughs> That's right. Well, if you're looking for an uplifting moment and a, uh, a statement of at least some political hope, you can go watch No streaming on Amazon Video. It's rentable through a lot of different digital services. It's on DVD and Blu-ray. Il Conde is a Netflix original exclusive, and it's streaming on Netflix now. Uh, Young Frankenstein is streaming on Max, and uh, that's really about it. So if you don't have Max or some Max bundle, you're out of luck on Young Frankenstein. That is, un- that is really unfortunate. Frau Blucher. <laughs> Finally, it's time to recommend a film or film-related item that complements this set of episodes. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, you had a, uh, a tie-in that you really wanted to get to on these two movies. Take it away. I surely did. So I did a piece... Uh, recently for uh, the reveal uh, that was sort of I like to do kind of these these catch-up pieces where I go 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 into Metacritic see what see what people think are the best films of the year so far and then find 10 films uh, the top 10 films that I had not seen and one of the films that uh, on there uh, that tied in really really well to this week's pairing is a film called The Eternal Memory it's a Chilean film it is documentary and uh, it is about this long married couple, Augusto uh, Gongora and Paulina Arishia. They, they're married for decades. They're both public figures in their way. Gongora was uh, uh, used to do underground newscasts during the Pinochet regime. And it's, and it is a, but it is a film that documents in an extremely intimate way, uh, his Alzheimer's and his, his, uh, slow deterioration of his, of his mind and, and, and body from that terrible disease. And then, and then his wife, uh, Paulina sort of tending to him and trying to, you know, keep, you know, keep his memories alive and keep his spirits up and, and engage with him as, uh, as she, uh, you know, in, in her sort of loving, fashion and um it is it ex- it, it, you know extremely beautiful moving film just because these two people are so fascinating uh it really kind of digs into their their histories a little bit but also 
you know, gets into just, you know, the devotion that they have for each other in this situation. And, and just on Paulina's part, her just, I wouldn't necessarily what would it call it optimism, but her, or cheeriness, but there is a certain amount of just positivity that is relentless with her, even in the darkest moments. And it, and it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel forced in any way. It feels like just this, this, ex, this, this love that she has for this, for this man that she is expressing and that she's holding on to for both of them, you know, in this terrible moment, even when he, even when things are fading for him, you know, she is keeping the flame alive on her own. And, 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 and the, the, you know, and he seems to almost have, even as he's forgetting her name even like there's there's this there does seem to be something between them that is that remains i guess i guess as implied by the title so it's a really really moving uh, film it is currently not in theaters however it is mtv documentary features bought it uh i have no idea what the story is with MTV, uh, but 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 one thing about MTV is that there is that they're owned by Viacom, and one thing about Viacom is that they have a streaming service called Paramount Plus, and mm-hmm. uh, the Eternal Memory is going to be on Paramount Plus, I believe, by October at some point, and uh, it is a very lovely film. It sounds like a sad film, and certainly is a film that that will choke you up on more than one occasion, but. You know, like 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 the film Dick Johnson is Dead, which is also kind of about dealing with someone with the dementia. It is a film of you know great heart and hope and humanity and optimism, and and I think you you have a kind of a good feeling from watching it. So uh, the Eternal Memory, highly recommended. Kind of just in a quick side uh, secondary one, which is the uh, the film Cassandra. If you if you like Gail Gar- Garcia Bernal, uh, star of No, uh, it's it's um, you want to see him in this. It's it's uh, it's not a perfect film, but it's it's a biopic of a uh, of a Mexican wrestler uh, luchador of the, of the of the name who wrestled in the name Cassandra. And Bernal is uh, really terrific in it and does a lot of the wrestling himself and a really impressive amount of the wrestling scenes are are uh, just uh, him without a stuntman. So, uh, you know, uh, if, if it's another reason to um, it shows a, a different, even more range of an already rangy actor. Yeah, when we were debating what uh, this particular set's pairing was going to be, we had we were playing around with doing Cassandra, and basically we we talked about other wrestling movies and didn't feel that any of them quite struck the same note since. Uh, Cassandra is expressly about a, a true life story about someone playing the 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 gay coded heel in uh mexican wrestling and finding a following and a fandom in spite of the fact that that particular role in wrestling is usually reserved for uh you know the the villain that gets booed so trying to find like a a queer positive wrestling movie in the past we were not hitting on a lot <laughs> and we talked about picking another uh like really central Gail Garcia Bernal performance. So we we had kicked around a, a bunch of different titles. And then when we pivoted to El Conde, we were pretty surprised to find out that the movie that we had reached for, uh, you know, the the most famous movie that he's done, maybe about Pinochet, also starred Gail Garcia Bernal. So it's a Bernal fest. Oh, there's a one Wallace Beery wrestling picture we considered too, but it didn't go well. <laughs> yeah. What do you need? A roadmap? We, in this case, needed a roadmap. That's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show, but we'll be back next week with another set of episodes. Scott, do you want to tell us about our next episodes? The new Hulu horror film, No One Will Save You, takes a minimalist approach in at least one respect. The heroine Bryn, played by Caitlin Dever, lives alone. So when extraterrestrials attack her home, she has no one to talk to. Even when she does encounter other people from the community, she's so hated by the locals that no one speaks to her either. As a result, No One Will Save You unfolds almost entirely without dialogue. Bryn's heightened sense of alienation calls to mind Jonathan Glazer's brilliant 2013 science fiction film Under the Skin, though in Glazer's film, the alienated lead character is an actual alien. As played by Scarlett Johansson, this unnamed being drives around the city of Glasgow seducing young men and leading them to the slaughter. So next week, we'll talk about No One Will Save You and Under the Skin and explore the quiet dread of alien-human relationships. 
For now, we welcome your feedback on No, El Conde, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. Email us at comments at Next Picture Show or leave us a voicemail at 773-234-9730. Before we close out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott. Uh, Well, you can find me on Twitter at Scott underscore Tobias at uh, Blue Sky at Scott Tobias uh, with no underscore. Uh, you can find my uh, work primarily at the Reveal, uh, w- which uh, the newsletter I write with Keith. Uh, it's that's the Reveal dot and I'm also at uh, the New York Times, Vulture, Guardian, and other fine uh, outlets. What about you, Tasha? Right back at you. Well, you can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can find me on Blue Sky at Tasha Robinson. You cannot find me on Instagram at Tasha Anything. I am the film and streaming editor at Polygon.com. I write about movies there, occasionally do interviews. A lot of TV coverage coming up. Pretty excited for the return of our flag beans death. Keith. I gotta watch that show. I still haven't watched that one yet. Uh, I, you can find me. Uh, oh, I'm a freelance writer. I write for a bunch of different places, including uh, TV Guide, The Ringer, GQ, Vulture, and of course, The Reveal at thereveal.substack.com. You can find me on Twitter. Not really though. At kfips3000. I'm also on Blue Sky at kfips3000. And you know, that's that's where you can find me these days. Where's Genevieve? Yeah, Genevieve. Absolutely. Do you know Tasha's deal? <laughs> Our absent co-host Genevieve can be found on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky on Blue Sky. Genevieve Kosky, although she has not posted there yet, uh, she she has a a blank profile and just the phrase "woozle wuzzle," which those of us who are old ass uh, Simpsons fans will recognize uh, exactly what she's doing there. She is the TV editor at Vulture.com, and that is where you will find her. Stay updated on the Next Picture Show at nextpictureshow.net, on Twitter at nextpicturepod, on Blue Sky at the Next Picture Show. Get bonus content and open discussion at patreon.com/nextpictureshow. And as always, we appreciate your rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you listen to the show. Heck, run out into the uh, the street and tell everybody that you like us. We will take any new followers we can get. Thanks to Dan the Bake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Petra Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. <laughs>